Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatam Bitam Sam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvarutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Pitam Sahagana Ravita Shri Vishakam Bitam Sha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 11, Lord Krishna's Entrance into Dwarka, Texts 4 and 5. Tatro Panita Balayo, Tatro Panita Balayo, Ravir Dipami Vajita, Ravir Dipami Vajita, Atmaramam Purnakaman, Atmaranam Purnakaman, Nijala bena nichyada Nijala bena nichyada Pritchit pulam mukha Vidana Sarvadurigam Avitarami Varbaka Avitarami Varbaka Tato Pranita Balayo Tato Pranita Balayo Raver Dipami Vadrita Admaramam Purnakamam Nijalavena Nityada Nijalavena Mukam Proshur
Itaram sarva suridam. Itaram sarva suridam. Avitaram ivarvaka. Avitaram ivarvaka. Tatropanita bavayo. Incessantly. 
Freedom. Freedom. Affection. Affection. Utpula Mukaha. Utpula Mukaha. Cheerful faces. Cheerful faces. Prochuhu. Prochuhu. Said. Said. Harsha. Harsha. Latin. Latin. Gadgadaya. Gadgadaya. Ecstatic. Ecstatic. Gira. 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 Speeches. Pitaram. Pitaram. Unto the Father. Unto the Father. Sarva. Sarva. All. All. Surdam. Surdam. Friends. Friends. Abhitaram. Abhitaram. The Guardian. The Guardian. Eva. Eva. Like. Like. Arbakaha. Arbakaha. Ward. If I could just interrupt for a moment. First of all, I wanted to thank again everybody who's here. There's about 30 devotees here. We want to give special recognition to Hanuman. Prasheka Swami is always also listening in. And of course, Mother Irmala, thank you so much for giving class this morning. Uh, we need everybody to mute at this time, especially those on Skype. All obeisances to Maharaj. Thank you for being with us today. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. So again, Krishna is entering into Dwarka and everybody's running towards him. So when they run towards him, what do they do? Translation. The citizens arrive before the Lord with their respective presentations, offering them to the fully satisfied and self-sufficient one who by his own potency incessantly supplies others. These presentations were like the lamp offered during worship of the sun. Yet the citizens began to speak in ecstatic language to receive the Lord, just as wards welcome their guardian and father. Purport. The Supreme Lord Krishna is described herein as Atmarama. He is self-sufficient and there is no need for him to seek happiness from anything beyond himself. He is self-sufficient because his very transcendental existence is total bliss. He is eternally existent. He is all cognizant and all blissful. Therefore, any presentation, however valuable it may be, is not needed by him. But still, because he is the well-wisher for one and all, he accepts from everyone everything that is offered to him in pure devotional service. It is not that he is in want for such things, because the things are themselves generated from his energy. The comparison is made herein that making offerings to the Lord is something like offering a lamp in the worship of the sun god. Anything fiery and illuminating is but an emanation of the energy of the sun. And yet to worship the sun god, it is necessary to offer him a lamp. In the worship of the sun... There is some sort of demand made by the worshiper, but in the case of devotional service to the Lord, 
There is no question of demand from either side. It is all a sign of pure love and affection between the Lord and the devotee. The Lord is the supreme father of all living beings. And therefore, those who are conscious of this vital relation with God can make filial demands from the Father. And the Father is pleased to supply the demands of such obedient sons without bargaining. The Lord is just like the desire tree. And from him, everyone can have everything by the causeless mercy of the Lord. As the Supreme Father, the Lord, however, does not supply to a pure devotee what is considered to be a barrier to the discharge of devotional service. Those who are engaged in the devotional service of the Lord can rise to the position of unalloyed devotional service by his transcendental attraction. Tatro panita balayo raver dipam uvadritaha atmaramam purna kamam nijala bena nitjada prityutpula muka prochur harshagad gadaya gira pitaram sarvasuridam avitaram ivarabakaha. The citizens arrive before the Lord with their respective presentations, offering them to the fully satisfied and self sufficient one who, by his own potency, incessantly supplies others. These presentations were like the lamp offered during worship of the sun. Yet the citizens began to speak in ecstatic language to receive the Lord, just as wards welcome their guardian and father. So Krishna's been away for a long time, just like a guardian and father sometimes goes away on business. My father used to travel sometimes for on business trips, He'd always make sure he brought a present for me when he returned. In this case, the citizens are giving presents to the returning guardian and father. An ordinary father goes out to work every day, comes home and is received by his happy family members. We have here Utpula Mukaha, cheerful faces. One of my god sisters is named Prafula Muki. Pula Mukaha, cheerful faces. So they have cheerful faces. Gadgadaya Gira, which of course can immediately remind us of the Shikshastika. They're speaking in ecstatic voices, running up to the Lord and offer him their balayaha, their presentations. This verse reminds me, many years ago when we lived in Detroit, we had a garden. Uh, we used to grow a lot of vegetables, mostly flowers also, fruit trees. And the biggest enemy of our garden was slugs. If you're not familiar with slugs, they're like snails that have no shells. And they would ravenously eat the plants. It was really heartbreaking. You see your little broccoli come up. And as soon as the broccoli is, is really vibrant and growing, those slugs just eat the whole thing. And they were voracious appetites. They would devour the whole plant. You know, some bugs chew a few leaves here and there, but the slugs would decimate the garden. So we tried different things, and eventually we were told that we should buy some ducks because ducks eat slugs. So uh, we got a couple of ducks, and they did indeed eat all the slugs. In fact, they ate all of the slugs. Then they didn't quite know what else to do. <laughs> uh, and even after we gave them away, we gave them to a a petting zoo where they wouldn't be killed. There, our garden was slug-free for the next five years after those ducks. Anyway, 
Uh, I was the one who took care of the ducks, the children and myself. My husband didn't take care of them at all. He didn't feed them. He didn't do anything for them. But somehow or other, they were very attached to him. And whenever he would come home from work, they would greet him with much enthusiasm. So he used to drive a truck in those days. And as soon as the truck would come down Lenox Avenue, before it would turn onto our street to come into the driveway, when they would, they would hear the sound of the truck coming from a distance, and they would run as fast as ducks can run in their waddling fashion. They would waddle up to the gate super, super, super fast, and they would be quack, 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 and they'd be so excited to greet him every day. And he used to tell me how happy it made him feel when he got out of his truck to have this welcoming party of ducks at the gate. Of course, traditionally, the wife and children are supposed to greet their husband like that. I don't know if that happens anymore, <laughs> especially now the wife is also working, so the husband has to greet her, the wife has to greet him. But that's the uh, conception, that as soon as the husband enters the house, uh, the wife takes off his shoes, uh, she washes his feet, she gives him a place to sit, gives him something to eat. This was the standard way in which guests were received also, that when somebody enters someplace, they're given quite a welcome. And the books that you read about relationships, they tell the wife, now don't tell your husband all your problems as soon as he comes home. Not that, oh, this, that happened, and that, that happened. But you receive the person with sweet words and with love and affection. So how much more this is done with God? And of course, not only is Krishna coming back after a long absence, but he's coming back having defeated the demons of the earth. We think about the returning soldiers and generals when they come back from battle, you know, at the end of some great war like World War II, when the returning American generals and soldiers came back to America. There was a huge parade where, of course, instead of throwing flowers, they throw little bits of garbage, little bits of colored paper, a Kali Yuga approximation of flowers. But there's a huge parade, they're throwing colored paper on them, and there's music and dancing, and people are coming and offering flowers. People are bringing up flowers and giving them to the soldiers and giving them various gifts. So how much more so when God himself is returning after a long absence, not just the absence of the day, but a long absence of many, many months, and having defeated the demons of the earth, installed Yudhishthir on the throne, how happy all the citizens were to see him, the relieving of their separation. So this is the mood in which they are approaching the Lord. And out of love, out of love, and we have the word suited, uh, they're coming to their greatest friend with great happiness. Happiness is exhibited in, uh, in their faces, and also happiness is exhibited in their voice. So these are the different kinds of bhava that are exhibited in rasa. So there's the, uh, the bhava where one goes, uh, one, one does something. And then there's the natural bhava that happens spontaneously, the sattvika bhavas. So that's the faltering of the voice, gadgadagadira, and the running up and giving some presentation uh, that is intentionally doing something, like one may choose to dance or one may choose to some external, intentional exhibition of love. And that is what's going on here. It's an exchange of love. 
And Prabhupada is going through great pains to show us that what's happening here is not something material. When the husband is working hard, he's working hard thinking, oh, my wife will give me something. And she'll give me something that I need. She'll satisfy me in a way in which I'm not able to satisfy myself. Uh, it's not possible for a person to feel as satisfied on their own as they can be with somebody else. They feel something lacking. So therefore the man is working so hard. He, he needs something. He's in need. He wants something. He feels incomplete. And why is the woman greeting her husband when he comes home from work? Why is he saying, oh, my dear, thank you. How was your day? What happened? How can I make you? Why is she doing that? Because she wants something. She feels incomplete. She feels she needs something. She feels without her husband's money, without her husband's protection, without her husband's love, how will she be able to live? So each person is doing it to get something from the other. And if they don't get what they want from the other, then they may withdraw. You know, if the husband is not bringing home any money, if he's spending it all on something else, the wife may not greet him anymore. And he comes home and she'll simply ignore him or she'll simply be nasty to him. And if the wife is not treating the husband pleasantly, if she's not cooking nice food and fulfilling his sexual desires, he may go to someone else. He may take his money and spend it elsewhere. It's basically a business deal. Even though there is certainly an emotional component of affection, we're not denying. Robert says that every living entity needs to love someone else, and that love is visible even in a tiger, even in a ferocious animal. It's visible even in an insect. It's visible even in the scorpion that's carrying the babies on its back. Uh, still, we're, we're not denying that there's material affection. We're not denying. Still, it's a business deal. It's not unconditional affection. It's not ultimately love. Why? That's described here. Because the Lord is Atmarama. He's not in need. As soon as I'm in need, it cannot be love. It can be something that approximates love and looks like love and imitates love, but it can't be the real thing. It's not possible. If somebody comes and praises us too much, immediately we're on the alert. What do you want? What do you want to get from me? Right? What, what's, the, what's the deal here? How are you going to exploit me? But if somebody's self-sufficient, there's no question of that. One reason that very rich people like to associate with other very rich people. They know that this person, does, they don't need anything from me. When I don't need anything from you at all, then the relationship is on the platform of freedom and actual love. And then there can be no demands. As Prabhupada says, there's no question of demand from either side. So if I already have everything that I need and everything that I want, everything, and not only that I have, I can even generate everything as the Lord can, then my, I love you just because I love you. If you give something to me or I give something to you or I accept something from you or you accept something from me, it's all on the platform of freedom. There's no sense of obligation. Relationships in this world, there's a sense of obligation. You make a contract. I'm going to work for you. I'm going to provide this service. You're going to do this for me. And if there's a breach of contract, people may even go to court. 
right? Marriage in this world is a contract. In fact, it's even a legal contract with legal provisions. And if somebody breaches the contract, now then again, there's a court case. There's demands. People are making demands. That's not freedom. Demands means I have to do this for you. I have some obligation to do it for you. And you have some obligation to do something for me. There's a feeling of must, have to. There'll be some consequence. If I don't fulfill my obligation or you don't fulfill your obligation, this is the law of karma. There's some sense of justice. There's some sense of fairness. It's not love. It's business. But when there's no need, when, it's, when both parties are fully satisfied, when both parties are able to follow their own desires, then there's just a give and take out of, out of affection. Nobody, there's no sense of obligation. Nobody feels, I have to. I must. This is the rule. There'll be some terrible consequence. There's no fear. I'll be punished. Or I'll, I'll lose something. No, it's all voluntary. And that is love. We're terrified of relationships in this world without obligation. Because we're terrified then I won't get what I need. I'm afraid to give to somebody without a feeling that they have to do something in return because then I'm afraid I won't get what I need. I'm afraid to give in that kind of relationship and I'm afraid to take in that kind of relationship because I know that there's going to be some negative consequence. So it's very hard for us to understand the freedom in the relationships with Krishna. Prabhupada emphasizes so much that the whole basis of devotional service between the living entity and the Lord is on the basis of freedom. He says, freedom is the main pivot. There's no need. There's no uh, need and there's no want even. Nothing. Just I'm doing it because I'm doing it. Almost whimsical. Therefore we use the word lila and krida, playful. It, it, it's, a play, it's, an, it's a playful exchange. That the citizens are giving to the Lord that which is his own energy. And although the pure devotees are fully connected with the Lord and therefore they themselves are Atmarama, the Lord is also giving something to them. This is explained so nicely in the 13th chapter of the 10th canto when uh, Brahma sees all the Vishnu forms and they're each surrounded by all living entities making offerings. And the Lord glances at them with raja, with passion, which Prabhupada says spiritually is affection. And Prabhupada explains the devotees have no desires, but by the Lord's glance they get desires of service. So the devotees are also Atmarama. Even at the higher levels of the universe, the devotees are Atmarama. And therefore, Prabhupada said he's not in want of anything, nor is the devotee in want of anything. There's no demand. What is a demand? Demand means I, I can't take a no. We study this in psychology. You know, it's interesting. There's a whole, uh, what would you call it, school of psychology 
that talks about have relationships without demands. Make all of your relationships without demands so that anybody can tell you a no at any time and that's okay. You just say to the people in your life, are you willing to do this? You say, okay, you, you admit that you need something. You admit that you're incomplete. And you go to the people in your life and say, you know, I really need peace and harmony. Would you be willing to please turn down that music? And if the people say no, you say, okay, I'll find my peace and harmony someplace else. I'll make another arrangement to meet their need, their, my need. Therefore, I will never place any demands on anyone. Now, it's very difficult for people to follow this 100% unless they're actually in connection with Krishna. Because, all right, if, you know, the person doesn't turn down the music, then what else am I going to do to meet my need? All right, I have to go in my room and close the door. And somebody knocks on my door. Oh, would you be willing not to knock on my door? No, I'm going to keep knocking on your door. Okay, then I have to go outside. Outside, the neighbors are making noise. Then I have to go to them. And eventually, I become frustrated and angry. And I start demanding You've got to meet my needs. You've got to turn this music down to meet my needs. So only one who actually can find everything within, someone who can find all of their needs within, they're able to make no demands. And Krishna explains this very nicely in the Bhagavad Gita, where he says the self-realized soul has no need to depend on any other living being and that he is satisfied from within. So this has to be there first before you can have actual loving relationships. Uh, therefore, what Prabhupada uh, told my father in 1976, which I just recently saw quoted in Bhakti Raghava Swami's Marnashram newsletter, where my oldest child, who was at that time just a, a small baby, about a year old, was sitting in my lap. And Prabhupada said, just like this mother is loving her son with no expectation of return, in that way you should love Krishna. And my father said, well, loving her son, help her to love Krishna. Prabhupada said, no, loving Krishna will help her to love her son. So first we have to get our connection with Krishna. First we have to be on the platform where our needs are fulfilled naturally because we're connected with Krishna. Then we can have relationships with no demands. Then we can have relationships of freedom. Now certainly while we're working on that, it's useful to learn the psychology of different people and how we can relate to people and be as undemanding as possible in our relationships with them, to be as respectful of their freedom and integrity as possible. But we're not going to achieve full satisfaction just by adjusting the material energy. This loving relationship that we want to have with Krishna and with other living entities is not possible unless we are first self-satisfied. We just can't do it. If I'm not self-satisfied, I will be going to others with a demand. I will not always be able to graciously and happily accept a no. So how do I get to this point of Atmarama? That is by this give and take with Krishna. This give and take with Krishna. Just like offering a lamp to the sun. The sun is the source of all light. If you think about whatever lights in your room, I mean right now in my room, my, the light is directly the sun. I don't have any other artificial source of light presently. The light is coming in through the door and the windows. And my whole room is illuminated. 
But if I have to turn on a light bulb, where is that light coming from? It's coming from electricity. Where is the electricity coming from? It's coming from burning fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are coming from plants. Plants got their energy from the sun. Or it's coming from hydroelectric power. And the water, uh, the water cycle is also by the sun, the sun evaporating the water and again causing the clouds to rain. Uh, wherever I am getting the electricity from, that is coming from the sun. And if I'm burning a lamp, what am I burning? I'm burning oil. Where did the oil come from? The oil is coming from plants. And the plants receive their energy from the sun. Or if I'm burning ghee, where did the ghee come from? The ghee is the, coming from the fat of the milk of the cow. And how is the cow getting that fat? The cow is eating the grass. The grass is pulling the energy from the sun. So the grass is pulling the fire energy from the sun. The cow is transforming that into fat, which can be burned, and again, release this energy of the sun. So I'm taking the energy of the sun and offering it back to the sun. In the same way, whatever I have, as just reading again where Prabhupada said, everyone has some extraordinary talent. And using that talent in the service of Krishna is a successful life. So where does this extraordinary talent come from that each of us have? Some of us are expert artists. Some of us are expert cooks. Some of us are expert speakers. Some of us are expert managers. Where did this extraordinary talent come from? It came from Krishna. And then we are offering it back to Krishna. Uh, so just like that, I get involved in this reciprocation with Krishna. Krishna is giving me, I give it back to him. Krishna gives me, I give it back to him. I give to him, he gives to me. I give to him, he gives to me. And as I do that with love, as I do that with love, I will find myself completely fulfilled. I will find that all of my needs are fully and completely fulfilled internally. That I'm no longer dependent on external situations, on the behavior of other people to meet my needs. And then my relationship with everyone is on the platform of freedom. Now you'll notice in this purport, there's some words that are italicized. And I went back to the original Bhagavatam to see that those are words that Srila Prabhupada capitalized. Those are vital and desire tree. So those who are conscious of this vital relation with God. The word vital comes from the Latin vitae, life. So this is a relationship of life. Actually, this freedom, this giving up of demands, this exchange of love, that is the essence of life. Prabhupada talks about here in the beginning of the purport that Krishna is total bliss. And then he says again, eternally existent, all cognizant, and all blissful. That is the essence of life, to be alive. Sometimes, you know, we go out on a sunny day and we feel full of life. What is this life? Existence, to be here, to be full of energy, of existence, vitality, again the word vital, to be knowing, understanding, and to have happiness. So that is our vital relationship with the Lord. And therefore, in this giving and taking, we should be prafulamukhi. We should be, have a happy faith. Now, we talk about austerity in devotional service. Chaturmasya is beginning. And in the last, couple, last 
day, I guess, two devotees were talking to me about their austerity they're doing for Chaturmasya. So we may think about spiritual life as austerity, and, and certainly there must be some austerity. That's a fact. Prabhupada said, without any austerity, if someone says, I have a spiritual process for you, but no austerity, they're cheating. And sometimes people will even come and say, oh, I have so many problems following the regulative principles. Can't we just change the definition of the regulative principles and then I'll be able to follow them? You know, lower the bar. I can't, I can't jump so high, so lower the bar. So there has to be some austerity. Of course, the real austerity is not whether or not you eat yogurt or whether or not you eat spinach. The real austerity is giving up our lust, envy, pride, and illusion. Trividam narakashedam dwaram nasanamadmana kamakrodas patasloba tasmadeta twain pajet. Pacho vegam manasakroda vegam jiva vegam mudarapasta vegam. That's the real austerity of controlling the mind and the senses and giving up our idea of Ishwarahama Hambogi. But anyway, although spiritual life certainly involves austerity, it is not meant to be austere. Kevala Nandakanda. Susukam kartamavyaya. Kartam to do. Susukam. Not just sukam, but susukam. Supposed to be very, very joyful. Prabhupada wrote in a letter to Jadarani that if you're not joyful, you can't make any advancement at all. First one has to, I mean, imagine the, the husband comes home from working and the wife goes, glad to see you, dear. Nice to have you back. Why don't you sit down? We'll wash your feet. I mean, who'd want that? Even the ducks were happy to see my husband come home. They were doing their gadgadayadjira. They were having ecstatic voices and joyful faces as much as ducks can smile. It was obvious they were happy. So life means happiness. This exchange with Krishna should be one of happiness. That's what, it, that's what love means. Here it says Krishna is accepting anything given with love. Of course, this reminds us of the verse, Pacham Pushpam Palam Toyam. Certainly, we show our love in terms of our sacrifices and austerities. Definitely. There's no question of loving somebody without being willing to make sacrifices for them. It just doesn't mean anything. I love you, but I'm not willing to sacrifice for you. What kind of love is that? But the sacrifice should be a joyful sacrifice. It should be a joyful sacrifice. Even when you think about what austerities you're going to do for Krishna, it should be austerities that fill your heart with joy. Like this one devotee who was telling me what austerities she was doing for, for Chaturmasya, she said, I feel so happy doing these austerities. I'm so happy to offer this to Krishna. And so that should be there. This give and take with Krishna should be vital. It should be full of life vital, conscious of this vital relation with God. Living. I think of it as, as electric. And Krishna and Radharani are often compared like that. A cloud with electricity. Sparkling. Glittering. Active. Joyful. Free. Prabhupada said, be careful not to kill the spirit of enthusiastic service, which is individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. 
So something that's alive, it's individual, spontaneous, it's voluntary, it's enthusiastic, it's joyful. As said here, the Lord is like a desire tree. This is also from the Lord's joy. Krishna is so happy. He's so happy with the happiness of his devotees that he naturally wants to give and the devotees are so happy with Krishna's happiness that they naturally want to give. There's a reciprocation of being happy with the other's happiness. So we can enter into this by finding our joy in Krishna consciousness. And Prabhupada says everyone has some extraordinary talent and to use that talent in the service of Krishna's successful life. That means to be in our place of greatest joy. To be authentically who we are. Spiritually, ultimately, we want to offer our authentic self to Krishna. That is finding our saibhav. Who am I? I am Krishna's friend. I like here are the residents of Dwarka. They're Krishna's wards. They're like Krishna's children. He's the supreme father. He's the king. He's the the prince of the Yadu dynasty. So we each have our authentic self that we offer to Krishna. Authentic self means the place where we are the most joyful, as it as, uh, it's explained by Krishna Das Kaviraj. I was just reading in Adi Lila, chapter 4, how each devotee feels, the relationship I have with Krishna, this is the best. This is the place where I'm the most happy. This is where I fit. This is, I'm being fully myself. And then that expresses itself in the other four bhavs, like we see here. The anubhav of the devotees running and giving presentations and the sattvika bhav of them speaking with ecstatic voices. So that is ultimately how we're offering our authentic self, our most joyful self, our self being in the position of who we fully are. But we also have an authentic false self, if that makes any sense. In other words, the self with whom we're identifying in this life, it also has some authentic expression, although in the greater scheme of things, it's false. How is that possible? Just like when you're on a stage and you're playing a character. So our guide brother Lokamangala used to play uh, Ravana, in the play of the Ramayan. And he would play Ravana very authentically. When he played Ravana, you really thought it was Ravana up there and not Lokamangala. I mean, he was scary. My son at the time was four, and whenever we'd see the play, he'd hide under the top part of my sari. Ah, there's Ravana! So that's playing, a, it's, a, it's a false part in the sense that Lokamangala is not really Ravana. But still, in service, he's playing it authentically. I, mean, I really struggled with that in the Ramayan when I had to play Shirpanika. You know, I had a hard time getting into the role because I was afraid, well, you know, if I really get into the role and play Shirpanika, then my real nature as a demoness is probably going to be revealed. I mean, I was actually scared. You know, if I get into the mentality of Shirpanika, then all the dams that I've built to hold back my demoniac nature may crash. I may not be able to pretend to be a devotee anymore. And, the, and uh, Nanda Kishore and uh, Loka Bangla used to really get on my case. Come on, you've got to be a demon. 
So we have a particular role we're playing for Krishna's pleasure. Just like that drama was for the pleasure of Krishna, for the pleasure of the devotees. And the drama we're playing in our life, it's a drama. Shakespeare was right. All the world's a stage and all of us simply players. That's a fact. It's a new potty. I'm an American, I'm Russian, I'm Indian, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a brahmachari, I'm a grahasta, I'm a vanaprastha, I'm a sannyasi, I'm a brahmin, I'm a kshatri, I'm a vaisha, I'm a shudra. I'm very good at this, I'm very bad at that. I'm a bad follower, I'm a good leader, I'm a bad leader, I'm a good follower. You know, whatever, I like everything organized, I have a... I have a good filing system or I have a good piling system. I'm more spontaneous, whatever. These are all upadis. And we are to give up all these upadis. Sarvapadi vanir muktam. At the same time, that's the vehicle that we're in. So there's an authentic expression of that also. And the authentic expression of that is also the place where we are going to feel the most joyful. So we offer both to the Lord. We offer both the authentic expression of our material self, of our material body and mind. We offer the service of our body and mind, which are ultimately also Krishna's energies, matter of my body and mind, that is also Krishna's. There's no difference between offering Krishna a ghee lamp or offering Krishna a pomegranate and offering Krishna my body and mind. And I offer Krishna my body and mind the way they are best utilized, that which is uh, most authentic for them, which is most joyful for them, where I feel alive. And by doing that, I will awaken the actual authentic self and be able to offer that as well. And ultimately, when the Kvaspadeha Punar Janmanaiti Mahameti, eventually, when I give up this upadi on all levels, then I will come simply to be offering my authentic self. So this is very simple. Connect with the Lord in the way that is most authentic for us, most vital for us, most alive for us. Do it with joy. Receive the gifts of the Lord with joy and give gifts to the Lord with joy. The six loving exchanges. Uh, with joy, with vitality, with spontaneity, voluntarily, with no feeling of obligation, with no feeling of have to, out of the sense of love, out of the sense of freedom. And when I do that, then I will feel that vital relation with the Lord. I will feel complete, I will feel full, I will feel satisfied, and then all my other material problems will be solved because I will no longer need any material arrangements to solve my problems. So wonderful, wonderful purport. We could go on for great length. I was thinking, you know, to go through each step here as to how, how Prabhupada describes so logically how the Lord is complete and therefore is able to have relationships with his pure devotees with no demand from either side. Pure love and affection, as Prabhupada says, between the Lord and the devotees. How can we want anything else but that, which gives us then everything we could possibly want or need, any other wants or needs 
pale immediately in comparison. So questions, comments, corrections, chastisements, additions, subtractions. Okay, for those if you want to ask any questions or comments, you can at this time. Uh, those on free conferencing, you can mute and unmute yourself with star six. Otherwise, everyone is muted. Anyone? Question or comment? Hi, Krishna. This is Ishan uh, Thank you very much, Mother Emila, for the very nice class. Um, you mentioned that uh, Sila Prabhupada said that uh, Krishna has given everyone something extraordinary to use or some extraordinary gift uh, to use it in Krishna's services like perfection. So the question is, um, how can one find that gift in himself? Okay, that's a very, very nice question. Uh, I'd say the first thing to do is, why don't you ask Krishna? Go to Krishna, ask him to reveal to you what he's given you. Ask him to make that gift apparent to you. Also, one can go to guru, to one's parents, to one's teachers, and ask them, please tell me what I'm very good at. Please make an arrangement for that to surface. Now, what we're very good at can be sometimes something subtle. There are some people who are very good at making others feel welcome or making others feel heard or listened to. They have very good uh, talents in relationships. There's um, a list of what we call the seven intelligences designed by Gardner that we use in education. Let's see if I can remember all of them without pulling up a file. Uh, one is verbal intelligence, mathematical, uh, mathematical and logical, spatial, uh, body like dancing, uh, acrobatics. Uh, did I say musical? Uh, musical, interpersonal, so with other people, and intrapersonal, being able to, say, meditate and focus. And they've added one to that, and that is spiritual intelligence. So that's some idea of general categories of talent. I've also seen, just looking at my own life, that sometimes an extraordinary talent we have may only come out to the front in the proper association mm-hmm. and, and the proper training. So I, I just give this simple example from my own life, but I'm, I'm sure that, that you can relate in your life or the lives of others. So I, I never really enjoyed teaching children. I just didn't. You know, when, when our first son was small, I'd often take care of groups of children. And part of it was probably the mood and the part of this kind I was at the time, that taking care of children was just sort of a necessary evil so the parents could do something more important. But also, I just never had any training. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really didn't enjoy it. And then soon after that, I met Jyotir Mai. And she had a son who was about the same age as my daughter, she wanted to start a nursery school. So we started a nursery school, and she trained me. She trained me in the proper mentality, which was really the most important thing. She said, Ormila, you're taking care of the children for the children, not for the parents. She said, it doesn't matter what the parents are doing. This is a, a wonderful service in, an, in its own right. And then she taught me 
how to deal with the children, how to have different activities. And I loved it. I loved it and I found that I had a gift for it. But I never would have discovered that gift without her, without her association in terms of her mood, mm-hmm. how she viewed the, the, the service, and her practical instructions. So I needed association on those two levels. How to do it, what were the skills, but also what were the values, what was her attitude. So I'm sure that the fact that many of us need training and association to reveal our gifts is the reason why all over the world primary education is general. And Prabhupada talks about understanding a person's varna once they're about 10 or 12. Now, why don't you just look at the horoscope? I mean, for example, Prabhupada talks about marriage, that you determine the equal varna of the man and woman by looking at the horoscope. But why doesn't the guru just decide that? Why don't you just differentiate children, you know, practically at birth? No, they actually decide at about age 10 or 12. That's when the differentiation occurs. And that's because some of our natural inclinations really cannot blossom until we've had the right kind of association. So now it's a little difficult if you've gotten older, you know, you're already an adult, and somehow or other you didn't have the proper training and guidance when you were a child to bring out that extraordinary talent. So what do you do when you're an adult? Then I'd say, you know, go back to prayer consulting with people who really know you well, and not only who know you well, but who admire you. Because I should also say that every strength materially is also a weakness. And how others perceive you depends on, to some extent, what kind of person they are. I'll give you a very simple example. So I know one devotee, wonderful, wonderful devotee, I... I, I, tempted to say his name, but anyway, very wonderful devotee, a, a very accomplished artist, let's just put it at that, who's known all over the movement for his works of art. His works of art exist in many, many, many Iskand temples, although probably most of the devotees don't know who the artist is. Anyway, he's the kind of person where he has certainly an extraordinary artistic talent, but he also has an extraordinary talent in his ability to get along with almost anybody. He's just so easy to get along with. Now, people who get along with anybody also tend to be, on the negative side, wishy-washy. They have to be. Strongly opinionated people can't get along very well with everybody. Just they'll make enemies. (laughs) Somebody won't like them. In order for everybody to like you, you have to pretty much never express strong opinions on anything. So that's both a good quality and a bad quality, depending on what situation you're in, depending on what you're doing. Uh, Another example is you could say a devotee who's very cautious and very, very careful. They double-check everything. They think about everything for a really, really long time before they make a decision. They do very, very thorough research. So now that's a strength if it's going to be somebody who's doing the shopping for the deity's clothes or somebody who's doing the account. But that's going to be a weakness if you ask that person to go preach in a Muslim country. So 
when you ask people to look at your talents or when you think about your own talents, remember that every talent is only an extraordinary gift in certain circumstances. In opposite circumstances, that same talent may be a liability. So if there are people who don't like you, they may see your very strengths as liabilities. People who really like you will see your liabilities as strengths in the proper situation. And for each of us, the very things we're looking at as our liabilities, again, they may be our talents in certain, certain situations. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's uh, very, very helpful. Very much indeed. Thank you so much. Ultimately, very helpful. your talent is where you feel most alive and most authentic. And right. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you also... Is think about in what circumstance do I feel fully alive? Do I feel really fully authentic? Do I feel like I'm really being myself? And then sort of analyze and take apart that situation. You know, and, and, and what are the components of it? In, if you think about what time in my life was I doing something or being something where I didn't want to stop. It was time to eat. I didn't care. It was time to go to sleep. I didn't want to go to sleep. Where at the end of the day, I might have felt physically tired, but I felt energized. I was satisfied and energized. It was like being plugged in. It's sort of like knowing what kind of food will energize your particular bodily constitution. You know, according to Ayurveda, different, each of us needs to eat different food to feel healthy. But sometimes you eat food, afterwards you're just heavy and tired and dull. And there's other foods you eat that you feel alert and, and activated. You feel like somebody charged you up. <laughs> so there are certain sorts of activities that also make us feel like that. That's a real key as to what your extraordinary talents are. If you can kind of pull out and, and analyze and separate what are the components. You know, do I really like doing things where I work with people? Or do I like doing things where I'm working more on my own? Do I like being more of a team? Like a team player? Or do I like being a leader? Do I like having being given very clear and specific instructions? Or do I like just knowing what the goal is and I figure out how to get there? Do I like to have things very ordered and systematic? Or do I like having things more spontaneous and, and creative and flexible? You know, do I like to take risks? Am I energized by risks and challenge? Or do I feel more energized by predictability and, and sameness? Do I like doing things where I use a lot of my own creativity or do I like doing things where I follow a particular set of instructions? Do I like doing things that involve research and study? Do I like doing things that involve caring for people and organizing care for people? Uh, do I like working with the land? Do I like working with animals? Do I like working with the arts? Do I like working with my hands? I, you know... And again, the best way I think to do it is, is think of some time when you felt really alive and tease it. What, were the, what was I doing then? 
Was I researching? Was I following a map? Was I being creative? Was I working with other people? How was I working with other people? Was it kind of a loose team where we all went off and did our own thing? Did we work really much together? Was there a strong leader? Was it really like a collaborative situation? Was I working almost entirely on my own? How creative was it? You know, ask yourself these kind of questions and you'll be able to come to something that really gives you a good idea of where you're best situated. And Prabhupada said, that's successful life. To take the, the gifts that Krishna has given me and use them for Krishna is successful life. By the way, to deny the gifts that Krishna has given us is in a sense a slap in the face. Yeah. Just, just like if I give you a present and you hide it in the back of your closet, I, I, I'm not going to be very happy with it. So sometimes devotees feel that, well, I don't want to do for Krishna that which makes me the most happy and alive because then I'll also be enjoying it. I should only do things for Krishna that I don't like doing. So this is not an... I don't read this anywhere in the Shastra. In fact, Krishna says the opposite. But this is... Uh, sometimes that mistake happens. And I hope I didn't give you too long of an answer. That's very, very nice. Actually, the last point you made there is like a, a parable in the Bible, isn't it, about the talents, where Jesus yeah. said somebody went away and gave um, one person ten talents, another one five, and another one one. And the one who was given one talent um, thought he hadn't been given enough, and he didn't use it at all. That's correct. So, yeah, but uh, the answer is really very good. What I can see there is that one needs to really sort of spend time to look at this, because I... I, I would need to do that. I, I think that uh, there's a lot there for me to take on board what you said and it's apply. Time well spent. It, it proper talks about the introspective stage, and it's some time well spent to uh, to meditate on. Okay, what what tools do I have here? Mm-hmm. I I yeah. have a question, Mother. Yes. Hare Krishna. Thank you for the wonderful class. Um, you were speaking earlier, and you said that um, Srila Prabhupada said, uh, you know, that, oh, loving Krishna will help us learn how to love our families. Yes. Um, but at the same time, so you're speaking a lot in your class about unconditional love, love with no demands. Yes. But at the same time, um, uh, I, and I could be wrong, I heard once that, um, somebody had asked Srila Prabhupada, well, well, Srila Prabhupada, what is the closest love that I can relate to um, that, uh, you know, for love of God? Like, I'd like to really know what that means. And he said, a love that a mother has for her child. Yes. And so could you speak about that? Because, you know, I know that anybody that's had children, grandchildren, it's like... Um, you know, you um, you give. You, I mean, you give them your time, your energy, your love, without asking anything back. So that's probably says that's the closest thing we can find. It's interesting that there's. I remember reading once that the strongest bond in the animal world was not between the mating pairs, but between the mother and the children. You know, that in the animal world, a mother animal will sacrifice her own life 
to save the life of her children. And this is not every animal species, of course. There are some animals like guppies will eat their children. But you'll find, you know, with elephants, with uh, tigers, even with mice and rabbits, they're willing to sacrifice their life or put themselves in danger for the sake of their children. And, of course, we see this among human beings. So the, the human mother, I mean father also, but especially the mother. So the child is growing within the mother's body and then drinking the milk from the mother's body and the mother is sacrificing so much time and energy for the child. And especially, you know, a, a tiny infant, what are they giving? And, you know, what are you, what are you asking from them? Really, you really couldn't even ask anything from them. They're not even capable, really, of giving you anything. At the same time, at the same time, even this love between mother and child in this world, it has a demand. Mm -hmm. As the child grows up, just even a little bit, the parents consider that the child owes something to the parents. That it's definitely there. I I remember once uh, at a temple for the Sunday feast, and there was one mother there with two young children. I think the oldest was maybe five or six. She asked the older one, please get me a glass of water. And he said, no. And she said, I fed you the milk from my own body for two years and you won't even get me a glass of water? <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's some, we can see some element of unconditional love between parents and children. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing a story once about a police chief who was, uh, be, who was looking for a serial killer and it's, it ended up that the serial killer was his own son. And he was writing about how when his son was in prison, that as the police chief, he was satisfied that the killer was brought to justice. But as the father, he still had affection for his son. So his affection for his son was not destroyed, even by learning that his son was a psychopath and sociopath. So in that way, the affection of parents for their children comes the closest to the affection of, of the living entity for God and God for the living entity. And in, that's natural because we are all sons of God. I mean, why do I tend to have unconditional love for my children? Because I think my children are part of me. And especially uh-huh. the mother feels like that because she grew the child's body within her own body. And she fed the child with milk from her own body. So the child really seems like an extension of her body. And because we love ourselves, therefore we love the child as an extension of ourselves. You know, we love ourselves unconditionally too. (laughs) You know, even when we do pretty crazy things, we still have some affection for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Even if we're depressed, you know, we still have some affection for ourselves. So we have some understanding of this. And that's explained, in fact, in the story of the cowherd boys where Krishna became all the cowherd boys. And Sukadeva Goswami explains that ultimately the reason we love Krishna is he's the self of the self. That ultimately we love ourselves and really ultimately we love Krishna because he's the self of the self. So this parent-child love is because we see the child as an extension of ourselves. And the less we see someone as an extension of ourselves, the less we have unconditional love for them. But as I say, even in this world, it's not... It's not always like that. You know, if you become a Hare Krishna devotee, your parents may have you kidnapped by Ted Patrick and have you handcuffed and beaten. 
out of their so-called parental love. So, yeah, not exactly. Parents have been known to renounce their children and disinherit their children and all kinds of things just because their child married somebody of the wrong race or chanted Hare Krishna. But my understanding is that you cannot have real love as long as there's a demand. As long as there's a demand, it's business. It's not real love. It may be greater or lesser degree. It's not just black and white. It's a range. And the only way you can come to having no demand is if all your needs are being met internally. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can have all your needs met internally is to have this vital relationship with Krishna. And when one has the vital relationship with Krishna, Krishna is meeting all one's needs, but one doesn't even go to Krishna to meet one's needs anymore. They're just met automatically. Like a, uh, a spring is filling up a reservoir of water automatically. You, you don't have to say anything or, or ask anything. So I think we, we have to see both simultaneously. We can look at the love in this world and we can gain something from it to appreciate love for God, something. At the same time, realizing that the love in this world, even the most pure love, as long as there's still demands and a sense of neediness, is really, really far, far, far from actual love. So it's you know, we can appreciate the reflection in a mirror as giving us some idea of the reality, whereas at the same time understanding that the reality is billions and billions and billions of times greater in, in quantity and in quality than anything that we may see in the reflection. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So when we, when we establish and when we learn how to love Krishna, then we see him in everyone's heart and that's how we end up doing everything. Certainly. I mean, if you love Krishna, you're going to love everyone that Krishna loves. You know, you wouldn't hurt or cause any harm to anyone. And naturally, when you love Krishna, you love every part of him and all of his parts and parcels. But you're actually able to give love because you're full and overflowing. Hare Krishna, I have a question. Thank you for a very, very nice class. Um, I, in the Banaprasta stage of life, uh, if the, one of the partners wants to advance more spiritually than the other one, and the one might be very neatly still, like they want to they wanna feel that affection, they want to feel that love, but the other partner is ready to like move on on the fast lane towards back to Godhead. So what's the best way to deal with a situation like that where the partners are at very different levels? I think this is also a question that comes up in the Grihasta Ashram, not only in the Vanaprasta Ashram. Of course, Krishna tells Rukmini it's best that people marry who are at the same level of renunciation. But it's also true that in the with the people that we that we live with, uh, some people may advance at a faster rate than others. I don't think that we can give some absolute formula and say this formula has to apply to everybody in all circumstances. I think we have to look at things on a very individual level. 
You know, for some people, what that may mean is the separate is physical separation. Vana Prastha life can be done in one of two ways. It can be done where the husband and wife still live together or travel together, and it can be done where they no longer live together. It's not necessary in the Vanaprastha ashram to stay together. So that may be the proper solution for some people. For other people, the proper solution may be that uh, they do their best to try to satisfy the other person. At the same time, they try to execute their own renunciation. And I know of people in both situations. Uh, There's no external situation one can have in this world that doesn't have a cost. There's always a price. And that's an individual thing. What price do I want to pay? Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody else can make that decision for you. And I don't think anyone else can look at, at your situation or another person's situation and say what's right for you. Obviously, the ideal thing is when both people agree. I mean, I'm very fortunate in my life. My husband and I both agreed as to how we wanted to live as monoprostics. It was... Uh, and that does not necessarily saying that it was a fast or, or easy decision. It was a decision that came over a period of time and in consultation with authorities. And it's also our relationship with Vana Process has changed over the years and it, it changes back and forth. But, you know, it's certainly difficult when both parties don't agree. I would also say that we have to be very, very careful that we don't cause pain to another living entity. I know of a case where the man was ready to renounce more than the woman and he just suddenly left his his devotee wife. And she suffered for years. And then he realized that he wasn't really ready to have such extreme renunciation. And he realized that he harmed his wife not because he was really more advanced, but out of pride. In fact, just just a few days ago, (laughs) I was talking to one of my godbrothers who said, well, yeah, I've given up my part of Rajic life and wearing saffron, and now I'm going back to wearing white and staying in one place. And I said, oh, are you going back to your wife? He said, no, I don't think I can do that. But, you know, I'm sitting around watching TV all day. I thought, whoa, <laughs> that doesn't sound very good. So one should be careful that we should be honest about our own level of renunciation we should make sure we're not renouncing just out of fear because things seem troublesome. If our renunciation is actually deep and joyful and genuine, uh, then again, I'm going to say go to Guru, go to Krishna, go to the people who know you well and who really are your well-wishers. Take some time in prayer and contemplation about what's going to be the best path for you. And know that that may change. You know, I just again speaking from my own experience, my my Vanaprastha relationship with my husband has it was uh, it was a gradual thing. It was a gradual thing on on many levels for me, as to you know what dealings my husband and I still had, how often we talked to each other, how often we saw each other, how I dressed, how I behaved, how he behaved, and it it wasn't something that it's not that overnight. I went from being a full-on Grahasta to being a full-on Vanaprasta. I don't know if I still come to being full-on Vanaprasta. So that's, I, I think we're looking at, at principles here. In the ultimate issue, Prabhupada says the highest principle is to save others, but the high, higher than that is to save yourself. 
or the highest principles to save oneself. But we never save ourselves by being cruel to others in the name of Krishna consciousness. So that also has to be adjusted. I hope that kind of non-answer was enough of an answer. Yeah, thank you very much. It'll be really nice if, if you did a seminar on Banaprast, uh, because I think there's a great need of, for that type of information for a lot of the devotees are on that age, you know, and uh, it's kind of difficult to find really, like, practical information. Thank you very much. Well, I'll take that as coming from Krishna. Um, uh, Jananda Goswami lived in the, the Vadaprasta for quite a while before taking sannyas, and he compiled quotes from Srila Prabhupada. I think it's like 100, 150 pages of quotes from Prabhupada on the Vanaprasta ashram. But it's true we could use something. I mean, now the Grahasta Vision team in North America has seminars on Grahasta life. We have the sannyas ministry. We have brahmachari conventions. I saw one happening at Bhaktivedanta Manor. But yeah, we don't really have that much guidance for how to, you know, when to enter into the Vanaprasta ashram, how to do it. Uh, I think it's it's often complicated by the fact that people sometimes marry very late, have children very late, or they don't really have some financial setup for themselves. So all these things, it would be a good idea to have some series of seminars for the Vanaprasta ashram, and particularly what to do if one party feels more renounced than the other. And by the way, that's not often. That's not always that it's the man who's more renounced. Any other questions? Yes, Mother Ermila, uh Rasa Rasika has written a question. Uh, okay. And I'd like to read it for him because he's in a place where he cannot ask it himself. Okay. Uh, first point is I like your point about authentic self. I think it's vital that devotees are honest with themselves and uh, with how. question is, how does authentic self link with how we associate in spiritual life? I'm not sure if I fully understand the question, but I think being, again, authentic self is on two levels. There's the ultimate authentic self. Prabhupada talks about two swadharmas. Swa means self, dharma means activity. Your swadharma means the the intrinsic nature. Dharma is your intrinsic nature. So we have two intrinsic natures, one which is real and eternal, one which is real but temporary, so ultimately is false. If you're talking about awakening our real, authentic, ultimate daibhav, when one starts to do that, which happens after most of the anarthas are finished, so when the anarthas are reduced almost to nil, the original spiritual authentic self, Chaito Darpana Marjanam, starts to be visible in the mirror. How that affects your association at that time is that you want to also associate with persons who are awakened or becoming awakened and who can guide you just like we were talking about materially, your talents come out through association and training. So when your actual spiritual nature starts to awaken, you want to associate with people who are going to help and guide you with that, who are going to guide you with the proper mood and guide you with the proper skills. So for that one, wants to associate with advanced devotees who understand your own 
mood. That doesn't mean that that would be your exclusive association. We are all supposed to be creatures. When it comes to our other swardharma, which is talking about what Prabhupada calls our psycho-physical nature, how does that affect our association? Well, to at least some extent, we want to associate with people who have a similar nature for the same reason, that they can guide us in the proper mood and the proper skills. And that would be if we're a sannyasi, we want to associate with other sannyasis. If we're an artist, we want to associate with other artists. That's not our exclusive association, but certainly we should try to have other people who, can, who share our interests and proclivities so that we can help each other in Krishna's service. If we're talking about aspects of our authentic self in terms of our strengths and weaknesses and how we relate with others, our interpersonal dealings, then we also want to associate with people who have strengths where we're weak, which means that they will be weak where we are strong. So I need to know, uh, I, I remember as part of my graduate study, I had to interview financial directors of school districts. And one of them told me, quite frankly, she said, I know what my strengths and weaknesses are, and I fill my, my group with people who are strong in my areas of weakness. So we also want to make sure that in Krishna's service, we uh, take help from people who are strong in the areas where we are weak, that we take guidance from them, that we have such people balance us, that we have such people act as kind of a, a check to our activities. If we're overly cautious, we want to have some association with risk takers. If we're naturally high risk takers, we want to associate with some people who are very cautious, for example. So to, to kind of have a balance and have a complete social body. And I'm not sure if I understood your question, so I'm not sure if I answered it uh, in a way that was helpful to you. He wrote, I think, yes, you got the gist of what he was asking. Okay. Anything else? Uh, Mother Ermola? Yes. It was a beautiful class. I've been writing notes ever since ever since I turned on the phone. But um, I've only been a devotee for 21 years, and every year there's a controversy about uh, this first month of Chaturmas. And I was wondering... Um, is it just spinach, or is it spinach and kale and lettuce, and what what all are we? What is the standard? You're asking the wrong person. Oh. Oh, I was just. Uh, I had yesterday, one GBC sannyasi asked me that question. I don't know. Uh, the rules for chaturmasya are in the Hari Bhakti Vilas. So I suggest that you consult with somebody who's an expert in the Hari Bhakti Vilas. Uh, the other person who spoke with me yesterday is following such a strict vow of Chaturmasya that she can only eat fruit Mahaprasadam offered to the deity. So it's, uh, I, I don't know. This is, not, this is not an area that I have expertise in. You need to ask people who are expert in the Hari Bhakti Vilas and in the Archana Shastras. So when I joined, we just didn't eat spinach. And then people said, all green leafy vegetables, and what does that mean? Does that include cabbage? Does that include, you know, suppose you have spinach sprouts, can you eat them? And I don't know. You know, the basis of Chaturmasya was that the sannyasis, normally part of their austerity is that they're traveling. 
But in Chaturmasya, because it's the rainy season in India, they can't travel anymore. So for four months, they have to stay in the same place. So they're not doing the austerity of travel, therefore they take on an extra austerity in their eating. That's the, the principle behind it. Okay, well, I think we should end here. Thank you very much. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Thank you, Mother. Thank you very much, Mother. Hi, Krishna. 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 Hi, Kr